Please pick up a Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, this is on page 977. If you pick up one of these black covered Bibles on a chair around you, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writing, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is God's own word. Let's pray. Again, we pray with David, Father, Teach us your way, O Lord, that we might walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We ask that you would, in fact, unite the scattered pieces of our hearts scattered by sin. You might unite them into a full-orbed understanding of who you are, that you would lift us into your presence even now as we look into your word and you would teach us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it's particularly appropriate on this day as we have uh, celebrated pastoral succession and the beginning of the transition that uh, we celebrate communion together, the uniting ordinance or sacrament of the Christian church. And I don't need to convince you of the importance of unity in churches, which we have experienced. If we took time this morning and each one of you came up here and shared something about your church experience, if you had any growing up, we would find Many examples of disharmony and disunity and how they impacted you. Now, thankfully, that wouldn't be universal. Many people have not experienced that. But they would be noticeable, I'm sure, if we all shared that. And the truth is, fractured church families rarely advance the gospel in a community. And that's why the Apostle Paul begins the next chapter of this letter by encouraging the Ephesian Christians to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They need to maintain it. We need to maintain it because it's something that the Spirit has already created in the church. And one thing we should never forget is that unity is the whole point of the gospel. It's the the very nature of the gospel message. First, it's to unite sinful human beings with a God of infinite holiness, to reunite us into a relationship, and then coming out of that to reunite us to each other, the people of God who each have a relationship with God, uh, unite us to each other in relationship despite all of our differences. In fact, ultimately, the Bible says it is God's purpose to reunite the whole universe into the peace and harmony and purpose for which he originally created it. That's the, the essence of what the gospel is all about. And in the New Testament, that, that message of unity is displayed in a very special way that most of us read over, don't think about very much, because it's not what we are facing in our day. It has to do with this. 
It was about, particularly in the churches that the apostles started, it was about reuniting Jews and Gentiles into one worshiping body. You see, the Jewish people were the people coming out of the Old Testament religion who had been given unique promises by God. And those promises were Uh, included commandments that they maintain a sense of separation from the rest of the world, which was pagan, which worshiped fertility gods and all of those things. And that, by its very nature, created in the Old Testament system, and as it came and Jesus received it, created a sense of distance between those who had physically descended from Abraham, that were in that day called Jews, and uh, those who had not, which were the rest of the world, called Gentiles, of which I'm sure the vast majority of us in this room are a part of. And Paul says that the way that Jews and Gentiles would be brought together into one body was a mystery in the Old Testament. And the word mystery there means it's something that wasn't revealed. And what I mean is this, in the Old Testament, if that's all you had, you would have assumed that a Gentile could become a part of the Jewish people, could become a worshiper, but the only way to do that was to convert, to be circumcised if you were a male, and to begin to observe all of the laws. If you did that, you became a part of Israel. And so the assumption would be that that's what was going to continue. Paul says, no, the mystery was made clear through Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. He refers to that in this passage that he, his burden was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, and in preaching that, to tell them that they could become a part of the people of God, not by converting to Judaism, not by accepting the laws of the Old Testament and beginning to live by them. They could become a part of the church by believing in Christ. And the message to the Jews was the same. You now... The people of God under the old covenant need to trust in the Messiah who is given to you. And then Jews and Gentiles were brought together into one body. And that's what I just read. That's what the words of this passage are all about. And what I want to do for just a few moments is to concentrate on one verse. It's verse 10 in this passage. It answers the question, why did God do this? Why has he reconciled Jews and Gentiles into one body? What is that designed to show? And who is it meant to show it to? Here's what verse 10 says. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just three simple things come out of these words. The first is that the church is the supreme exhibition of God's wisdom. The church is presented in the New Testament as the supreme exhibition of God's wisdom. Now, when I use the word church, it impacts people in all different ways. You might think of many different things. One person might think of a denomination that you grew up in, Methodist or Baptist or Roman Catholic or whatever it was. You might think, well, that's what it's referring to. But the fact is, the New Testament never speaks of denominations as we think of them today. It does speak in a couple of places of churches in a local area, like in Asia Minor, that somehow had a connection with each other, but it doesn't speak of denominations as such, and so that's not what it's referring to here. Another person might, if they've read some church history, they might think of what used to be called the church triumphant, 
Those aren't words that I read often today, but the church triumphant referred to all of those who are presently in heaven in the presence of the Savior. And it refers to those at the end of the book of Revelation, when it's all over, those who end up with God. That's the church triumphant. It doesn't include those of us still on life and the earth, but that group is referred to in the book of Revelation, not by those terms, church triumphant, but it's referred to, and it's not really in view in this passage. But there are really two meanings that it carries in this passage and in most of the book of Ephesians. One is what people call the universal church. That is like the ideal church that exists at the present time in the mind and purpose of God. It consists, to use scriptural terms, of all the elect. It includes all true believers everywhere in the world at the present time or in heaven with Christ, even now, the ideal people of God. And so it doesn't include hypocrites and false confessors that might be in the churches today. The universal church. And then another way that this book uses it, Ephesians, is the local church. And the local church is simply a family of confessing believers as we have here today. Now those last two, the universal church and the local church, at least in the New Testament, have a great deal of uh, overlap. It's like, I don't think Paul would have conceived of them exactly as we do, as two completely separate things. The New Testament idea is that a local church like ours, we ought to think of ourselves as one expression of the universal church, as a gathering here in this community of true believers. That's how we ought to think of ourselves. Now, the fact is, no local church will ever perfectly represent that. Um, The church in its visible form will always contain hypocrites, we're told. I remember my children were growing up and they usually in their young teenage years would say to me, you know, dad, the church is full of hypocrites, like they'd learned something new. And and they were always surprised when I said, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, that's the nature of a church. But, but a healthy church is one where there is a, a serious attempt to try to lower hypocrites and people falsely confessing the gospel in the church. It's a, it's a place where the people of God, through their leaders and with their leaders, attempt to maintain their unique identity as the people of God in a community. It's meant to be a place where baptism and the Lord's Supper are not just indiscriminately administered to people who agree with some vague spiritual notion, but they're a reflection, those things of true conversion, so that they mark out the boundaries of the people of God. So it's this idea of the church that Paul's referring to here. When I say the church, according to this verse, is the supreme manifestation, exhibition of God's wisdom. He's referring to a local church like ours. This is the way in which God demonstrates his wisdom in the world in which we find ourselves. A local church made up of individual believers And obviously the church ultimately is made up of individuals, but we are regarded as not individuals, but as a community when we gather together. This verse pictures us, Grace Church, along with others. We're not the only, but it pictures us, and we should picture ourselves as on display for all creation. That all creation might see this as a prime example of God's wisdom. How wise God is to have brought about 
this reconciliation to himself first, then to each other, that we might serve together in the church. So this church is the supreme exhibition of God's wisdom, but the second thing we might note in these words in verse 10 is that the church displays God's wisdom like light passing through a prism displays the shades of light in all of the hues that exist. That's what he says, the manifold wisdom of God, multicolored splendor. This compound words manifold in your Bibles means multifaceted, like a diamond that's been cut to several facets so finely that it shows off all of its brilliance, each facet displaying a different aspect of its brilliance. Or it's multicolored, it's used in the ancient world, this word of a garland of varied flowers put together that display, and they're arranged beautifully to display all of their hues and shapes. And how does God do that through the church? Well, He does it, as I've said, by reconciling each of us to himself through the gospel and then to one another in the church family. After all, each person in this world and each believing person in the church is a unique person with a unique set of characteristics. You you think we talk about nature and nurture. In terms of nature, we're given certain things that have to do with our temperament and our personality and our gifts and strengths and weaknesses. And we come in different shapes and sizes and hair colors and eye colors and all of those things. Every person in the world is unique in terms of nature, but you can think also of nurture. We're also impacted, and we don't even know where to draw the line between nature and nurture, But, you know, we're impacted by the family in which we're raised. So that most of us come from different family backgrounds. And even those of you in the room who come from the same family, you come from different experiences, unique experiences of that family that has shaped you in different ways. And you have to add to nature and nurture, you have to add sin. Sin is that which has infected the human heart since the fall. It's the reason for Christ's coming. And each one of us, has sinned in unique ways, which has shaped our soul in certain ways. And when God draws us to himself, he deals with the unique shape of our sinful heart. And then he displays his wisdom through how he begins to rework us in the church. So that each person, each person displays a different facet of God's glory or a different color of the Lord's wisdom. So, What this verse simply says is the church is the supreme display of the wisdom of God, and the church displays the wisdom of God in all of its multifaceted glory or color. And then one thing, one more thing from this passage. It's found in the words of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is the supreme display of God's multicolored wisdom to the angelic powers. This is the one that's the hardest to understand. We know from the Bible elsewhere that God makes known his wisdom and his grace and his power. He makes it known to all creatures. And he does that even, we'd know, through the church. But this passage isn't focusing on that, that all of creation somehow is impacted by God's creation of the believing community. But uh, God's wisdom here is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, In this letter, these words, rulers and authorities, refer to angelic powers, usually viewed in ranks with those who are supreme above those who are less so, existing as like the host of God. 
And they fall into two categories, the elect angels who belong to God and the evil angels who have chosen to follow Satan. And we're told in the Bible elsewhere and in this book that there's a war in heaven between these two entities. And we know very little about that war. I mean, what we know is pretty simple. It can be summarized simply. We know that in that war that's going on in the heavenlies, the outcome is already assured. We wouldn't have to have the book of Revelation to know that. We could learn it from the letters of the New Testament, the words of Jesus. But the book of Revelation sketches out in fullness that the, the, the war is over. The war, we know who wins in the end. God wins. But we are still living through the time when the war, the, 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 the victory has not been declared and the whole earth has been, not been brought yet to peace. In other words, there's still battles going on in the spiritual realm and on the earth. And um, we are told that this war going on in the heavenlies is not something we are meant to enter into directly. Human beings, Old Testament and New Testament, are commanded not to break through from the natural earthly realm into the spiritual realm, like talking to the dead and things like that. We're not ever to do that. And the reason is that that war is something we are completely unprotected to deal with. And so we're commanded to spend our time thinking about the earth. We're also told this about this war in the heavenly, that the angels have great interest in what's going on on the earth. In fact, one of the most interesting passages in First Peter where Peter refers to it in this way, after describing the glories of redemption and all that God intends to do through that, he, he says that these things that he's describing, these things are things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. Now, why is that? Why do angels find us, the church, so interesting. Well, it's probably because of a fourth thing we know about this battle going on in heaven, and that is there's no redemption for angels. Angels are not a race. Christ redeemed a race of people who are physically descended from each other and are organically united to each other so that we are either in Adam or ultimately we're in Christ as our representative head because we're a race. There's no redemption for angels. They are fixed as either elect angels carrying out God's will or evil angels carrying out Satan's will. So when angels see the church, here's what they see. They see a creature who, like them, if they're fallen angels, they see a creature who rebelled against God, who was cast into sin, broken in relationship with God. They see a creature who is called the image bearer of God, as we were created in the image of God, who also fell into sin with a corrupted nature, who has wandered far from God, And what they see in the church is they see those same people now submissive, forgiven, alive in Christ, united in worship. And angels long to understand what that means. What does that mean? Because they they know no redemption. They don't understand the very concept. And the whole point of the passage is the church is the supreme display of the glory of God. And it's meant to be a display to the angelic powers. And that refers to us, the local church here in this community. With all of our human failings and weaknesses, this, this local church, the local church in the eyes of secular people today is just kind of a dog and pony show that people put on on Sunday mornings. 
The music, even if it's good, does not match the music that you will get at a rock concert. The local church is not made up, at least very much, of celebrities and culture shapers and techno wizards and media elites. The church is made up of normal people whose names aren't well known, who are fathers and mothers with their children and single people and neighbors and friends. They're normal, common people. That's what the church is made up of. And the spiritual powers of the universe, we're told, when they see us, they marvel at it. They don't, we gather, tune in to America's Got Talent or Real Housewives of Paducah, Kentucky or wherever. They, they, have, they have no interest in those things. They tune into the church and they watch us in wonder. So adjust your lives accordingly and seek to be the best display of the wisdom of God that you can be, not only as individual Christians, but as a church. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, as we bow before you, we thank and praise you that you are a God of infinite majesty, that your wisdom, which is supreme, is displayed in a way that we cannot understand, and yet it both strikes a sense of fear and responsibility into us, and it gives us a sense of how important we are in your purposes and in your eyes, that the church now displays God's manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Please impress upon us the value that we have in your eyes and the purpose that you've given to us, and allow us to seek to be together the display of your wisdom that you mean for us to be. And we give you this in Jesus' name. Amen.